ex worker. An audio strike against a monotone world. A twice monthly podcast of anarchist ideas and action. For everyone who dreams of a life off the clock. Welcome to episode number five of The Ex Worker. Following our discussion last time of prisons and prison society, this time we'll take a look at the police and why we hate them too. We'll also hear more accounts of rebellion in Turkey, a review of To the Indomitable Hearts, the prison letters of Luciana Tortuga Pitronello, an interview with a participant in Copwatch from Atlanta, Georgia, and so much more. Our, Our name, name is, is Clara, Clara, and we'll be your hosts. Don't forget to let us know what you think. Gushing praise, brutal critiques, ideas for future episodes, and pictures of cops on fire can be emailed to podcast at crimethink.com. You can also leave us a voicemail. Our number is 202-59-NO-WORK. That's 202-596-6975. And don't forget to rate us on iTunes, too. Let's roll. Let's get started with the hot wire, news and updates from struggles around the world. Clara, what's the latest from the rebellions in Turkey? As demonstrations subsided in much of Istanbul and Ankara, the working-class district of Dikmen continued to build barricades and set fires after a cop who murdered a protester was released pending trial. At least four people have been killed during the state's repression of dissent, with more than 7,500 injured. Reports of the protests were initially suppressed in a media blackout with information disseminated via Facebook and Twitter. Turkish officials have begun gathering information about social media users involved in the uprising and have taken steps to ensure social media sites are accountable to their authority in the future. Turkey's Prime Minister Erdogan proclaimed that unnamed foreign entities and terrorists were responsible for the unrest both in Turkey and in Brazil. Hey Clara, it's Alanis. A comrade reporting from Istanbul spoke with a member of Karshi, a group of football fans who two weeks ago hijacked a bulldozer left outside of their beloved Besiktas Stadium and used it to pummel the police's water cannon trucks. Aside from football, we are also involved in social activities and run many social projects. So clashing with the police is not all that we do. We are involved in all aspects of life. In the first days, we showed support with our banners. At the beginning, there was support during the night. We wouldn't stay at night, we'd go in the mornings. Afterwards, when the police started attacking the innocent resistors and burning down their tents, this triggered a great reaction from us. When the police closed down Gezi Park, I think it was on Friday, we began to rally towards here and Harbai. We couldn't enter in, but we resisted for about 22 to 23 hours. Nine hours of this resistance was uninterrupted. Ongoing against the police gas and pressurized water tanks, we kept at a distance of 50 to 100 meters, while we resisted actively for nine hours. Aside from those nine hours, the resistance was generally passive. We resisted for 23 hours. The second day, around 1 or 2 in the afternoon. Again, we gathered in Besiktas and came here. This time we managed to enter into the park. After that, the park was occupied, so the Takshim area was open to everyone. Other groups also entered from different points, and the Takshim area got closed with barricades. We then retreated back to Besiktas as we thought that Takshim had now been entered into and reclaimed. After we moved back to Besiktas, the police started to attack us in Besiktas with gas and things. Here the Besiktas resistance began. The people resisting in Besiktas, the workers, the ordinary people living there, for three days they demonstrated a great level of resistance toward the police. At times it was active resistance, and at other times it was passive. After that, 
We ended the resistance in Besiktas by demanding that the police leave our neighborhood. We told them to get out of our neighborhood, and they did. After that, we started to make our way back here. Now we are here. Until this area is taken under protection by the government, we are going to continue to stay here. We don't want any kind of structures built here. We want this area to stay as it is, as a park. We want it to stay like this forever, and we are going to take this all the way despite all the provocations. Now the Karshi group has had a great level of influence over Gezi Park resi resistance and changed it. How do you think the Gezi Park resistance will affect the Karshi group, its character, and the future? Well, the thing is, we are an apolitical group anyway. We do not lean towards any political party or any left-right ideology. The rest of this interview and footage of it can be found in, document, in a documentary chronicling the Turkish uprising at Gezi Park, available online for free at globaluprisings.org. Global Uprisings is an independent news site and video series dedicated to showing responses to the economic crisis from around the world. In Brazil, protests against a 10-cent transport hike quickly escalated into millions of people pouring into the streets across the country, expressing a generalized dissatisfaction with the ruling class. Brazil's president, Dilma Rousseff, a former Marxist urban guerrilla, has attempted to pacify the country with reforms that have largely failed to quell the unrest. From Turkey to Brazil, governments, conservative religious parties, and leftist workers' parties alike have struggled to control the demonstrations, but the streets resound with a powerful collective no. The Canadian legislature passed Bill C-309, implementing a maximum of 10 years in prison for wearing a mask during a riot or an unlawful assembly, in response to increasingly militant protests in Vancouver, Montreal, and Toronto that included property destruction by black blocs and other masked militants. A Utah woman became the first target of a so-called ag-gag bill, which criminalizes filming animal industries. Although her charges were quickly dropped, similar legislation that makes it illegal to expose animal cruelty or industrial whistleblowing is on the books or pending in several states. Meanwhile, animal rights activists in Sweden are suspected in the arson of a garage, vehicles, and machinery of a man who had announced plans to open a mink farm, while a self-described veganarchist wolf threw Molotov cocktails at a Burger King in Chicago. And 40 tons of genetically modified sugar beets were destroyed by an unknown group of persons in Oregon on land owned by biotech giant Syngenta. Greek anarchist prisoner Kostas Sakas began a hunger strike on June 4th, demanding his immediate release. Sakas' pre-trial detention was just extended six months, past the maximum 30 months allowed by Greek law, which he has already served. Solidarity actions have occurred all over Greece, including banners, demos, and attacks, as well as numerous acts of refusal by fellow prisoners, including hunger strikes, statements of solidarity, and non-compliance in court proceedings. International gestures of solidarity have included propaganda during a demonstration in Lisbon, Portugal, as well as an arson at a hotel in Jakarta, Indonesia. Now it's time for a piece of the Crime Think Contradictionary. This episode is brought to you by Broken Window Theory and Getaway. Broken Window Theory the superstition that if minor infractions are aggressively repressed, more serious crime will decrease. Nowadays, this is associated with Rudy Giuliani's brutal tenure as mayor of New York City, during which the New York Police Department grew to be one of the largest standing armies in the world, so as to crack down on graffiti and subway fare evasion. But the theory originally appeared in an article by James Wilson and George Kelling. Consider a building with a few broken windows. If the windows are not repaired, the tendency is for vandals to break a few more windows. Eventually, they may even break into the building. And if it's unoccupied, perhaps it becomes squatters or light fires out inside. Or consider a sidewalk. Some litter accumulates. Soon, more litter accumulates. Eventually, people even start leaving bags of trash from takeout restaurants there or breaking into cars. There you have it. It's not poverty or homelessness that causes people to become squatters, arsonists, or larcenists, but unrepaired windows. Similarly, 
Western thinkers as prestigious as Aristotle once believed in spontaneous generation, that aphids arise from the dew that falls on plants, fleas from putrid matter, mice from dirty hay, and so on. In an interesting twist, ever since the protests at the 1999 World Trade Organization Summit in Seattle, anarchists appear to be operating on the same premise. If only a few windows can be broken, revolutionary struggle is bound to break out. Getaway. Getting caught is the only punishable offense. For more explorations of the war in every word, visit crimethink.com slash contradictionary. Oh, hey, Alanis. Oh, oh hey, Alanis. I didn't know you were going to be in this episode. Yeah, I was just in this part of the time-space continuum, so I thought I'd warp over and see what y'all were up to. Well, we're about to get into it with the police. <laughs> I mean, get into talking about the police. Cool. Have you read Our Enemies in Blue by Christian Williams? Hi, this is Christian Williams. I'm the author of Our Enemies in Blue, Police Power in America, and more recently, Hurt, Notes on Culture and Modern Democracy. In Our Enemies in Blue, Christian reigns in the myth that police misconduct is just a matter of bad apples and demonstrates that instead so-called misconduct is a function of the very nature of policing in the U.S. Christian examines populations most often subjected to police abuse and the forms that the abuse takes, delving into the role of police brutality in repressing political dissent and in preserving existing structures of inequality. Christian... Let's begin by tracing the evolution of the modern police force back to the slave patrols. My argument in the book is that the police originally grew out of a previous sort of social control mechanism called the slave patrols. And the slave patrols were a militia-based arrangement where white men were conscripted into patrolling plantation areas in the evening and enforcing pass laws and keeping slaves on the plantations and also making sure that they didn't have certain prohibited items like, depending on the location, firearms, alcohol, paper, etc. From that process of adaptation, we get the first examples of what we could recognize as modern police force. The, the earliest one that I found was in Charleston, South Carolina, at the very end of the 18th century. So we find them at the beginning of the 21st century still acting in ways which disproportionately affect people of color, still acting in ways that maintain existing patterns of segregation, still acting in ways that reduce the possibility of members of oppressed groups exercising any sort of self-determination. And so, again, the, the argument of the book is that the changes in the law are to some degree cosmetic, that there are these deeper structures of inequality that structure our society, and that the role of the police really is to preserve those. White supremacy being one of the most important. During the heyday of Occupy, some protesters rushed to the defense of the police, insisting that they are a part of the 99%. How does this obscure the role of police in a capitalist society? The notion that the police are part of the 99% partly relies on a misunderstanding of how capitalism is structured. And it makes capitalism simply a matter of income inequality and not a matter of power, not a matter of labor, not a matter of ownership. That isn't simply a matter of percentages, it's a matter of classes. It's sort of its most basic. There's a class that owns things and that meets its need and perpetuates itself simply by owning things. And there's a class that owns more or less nothing. And in order to individually meet their needs also perpetuate itself as a class, it has to sell its labor, which really means people rent themselves to the people who own things for the sake of getting their needs met. Now, the tricky part is that in the middle, there is a group that takes on some of the character of both of these two main classes, and that, that's the class that manages things, right? So most of us, we go to work, the person who is our boss is not the person who owns 
the establishment, or not even a member of the group that owns the establishment that we work for. He's a manager. He also rents himself out. And so in that sense, he's part of the working class. But the thing that he rents himself out to do is to represent the owners. And therefore, he very much identifies with them. The interest he preserves are theirs. His whole job is keeping the working class doing the things that keep this cycle of extortion going. So if we apply that very basic analysis to the, the broader social system, and we look at the role of the police in terms of preserving inequality, and we look at their actions historically in terms of disciplining the workforce and also um, suppressing uh, any sort of um, union activity or any sort of like other class-based political efforts, then it's pretty clear that their role within the society is part of the managerial apparatus of capitalism. That, they, that even though um, at times their working conditions are abhorrent, and even though you know they are not themselves capitalists and do have to rent themselves out, and even though they often come from sort of blue-collar working-class backgrounds, despite all of that, their position in the class society is that they're there to keep the working class working for the benefit of capitalism. And and so for that reason, it makes more sense to treat them as sort of a boss class rather than as workers. And therefore, uh, the the efforts to sort of bring them over to the, um, the side of the 99% are misguided. So dovetailing that thought, Occupy hashtag brought the issue of police brutality to the mainstream. I think the militarization of the police was something that many Americans thought would be reserved for foreign terrorists. And the media made a solid effort to explain away why city governments were unleashing a military-trained local law enforcement on the rambunctious children. Oh yeah, and poor people. How does this fit into the history of protest police strategy? There is a deep connection between the, between protest policing and the way that that has developed and militarization. And to understand how these things are connected, it's really important to look back toward the last major societal crisis that really threatened the police altogether, which was during the uh, late 60s and early 70s, but really culminating right around 1968. During that period, the police were using a form of crowd control called escalated force. And the notion was that the, it was the job of the police to maintain control and suppress public protest. And to do that, they would use force at a level one step higher than the resistance that they had. And that they would begin at the lowest level of force and then escalate as resistance escalated. This was a disaster for them. And it went wrong in several ways. One of the ways that it went wrong was that as the police escalated their force, crowds tended to escalate their resistance. So the things that probably would have been peaceful rallies or polite picketing became major occasions of disorder because the police were antagonizing the crowd. Another way that it went wrong is that the police attacked peaceful groups and most famously, you know, Bull Connor attacked Martin Luther King in Birmingham and the television media showed this all over the world, and it was hugely discrediting to um, the cops themselves and to the city government and to the entire system of segregation that they were trying to preserve. So they sort of won tactically, but then failed politically. And so there was a shift within policing beginning in the 70s. Uh, there were two shifts, and both of them are represented in the negotiated management strategy. One was the shift toward militarization, which people mostly think of in terms of SWAT teams and helicopters and weaponry and all that kind of stuff. But I think the organizational aspect of it is actually much more important. The other main shift is toward what's called community policing, which is the softer policing approach where police form partnerships with community and are very invested in building relationships with people in the community and especially leaders within the community and try to put a friendly face on the way law enforcement is done. You put these two things together in a crowd control setting and you get negotiated management. What negotiated management meant was that instead of just showing up with 
horses and clubs and crushing demonstrations. So the police were instead going to engage with the leadership and make arrangements, make deals about how demonstrations would proceed. And then the, the police would be put in this role of facilitating the demonstration, provided that the demonstration stayed within certain lawful parameters. And so that um, initiated the long and, um, for many of us, very frustrating period of um, peaceful and completely ineffectual protest that began roughly 1980 and ended precisely November 30th, 1999. Because the police went solely with a negotiated management kind of plan. Their whole plan was that they were going to negotiate with the leaders and the demonstrations. They were going to um, make very clear arrangements about like where demonstrations were allowed and when. They were going to like maintain avenues of communication. And instead, the actual protesters were hell-bent on actually disrupting the WTO meeting, and they did that. When they did that, when barricades went up in the streets, when people were um, refusing orders to move, when people were refusing to not only do what the police said, but also do what uh, the marshals of the demonstrations were telling them to do, the, um, the police really had nothing to fall back on, except what they do, what they do the rest of the time, which is hurt and arrest and so they fell back on something like an escalated force model. We've seen a new period of innovation in crowd control and a new period of um, experimentation in terms of what the police are doing. And the person who has the, or the, the people who have the best theory as to um, how this is developing are a couple of sociologists um, named Patrick Gilham and John Noakes. And they describe the new system as strategic incapacitation. And strategic incapacitation borrows from both escalated force and negotiated management and selectively applies in different aspects of it to different um, kinds of protesters. So protesters who are tagged as troublemakers, protesters who are tried, tagged as disruptive, receive escalated force kinds of treatments. Protesters who are tagged as lawful, protesters who are tagged as cooperative, receive negotiated management types of treatments. Um, added on top of this, there is a new um, emphasis on uh, controlling the narrative publicly so that the police are um, aggressive in terms of uh, their media strategy. And some of that is used to discredit the protesters and the uh, tagged as being disruptive. And some of that is to you know, paint the police themselves in the best light that they can. Um, and then there's also a renewed and much more um, uh, advanced emphasis on intelligence gathering ahead of time because the police want to know exactly who is coming to you know, the demonstration or whatever and for exactly what purpose so that they can sort which groups they should accommodate and which groups they should um, negotiate with and which groups they should suppress. Thank you for joining us, Christian. For more on the role of the modern police force, Our Enemies in Blue, published in 2004, is available from South End Press. Christian is also the author of American Methods, Torture and the Logic of Domination, published in 2006, and also available from South End Press. For links to articles and essays by Christian Williams, please visit christianwilliams.com. Later in our episode, during the mugshot, we'll build on this discussion and take a look at how race and class intersect in the neighborhoods of East Atlanta, and their Copwatch chapter will explain how they deploy various forms of police resistance, including tactics for disengagement, countering community policing, and disrupting crowd control. Hey, Alanis, can I get your opinion? I was just trying to decide whether or not to read the text from this crime think poster. Oh yeah, this one! I have that hanging up in my time machine. I think you should read it. It's great. Yeah, I like it, but I don't know if I agree with the whole thing. Would you want to read it? Sure. <clears throat> the ones who beat Rodney King, who gunned down Shambell and Amadou Diallo, and Oscar Grant 
who murdered Fred Hampton in his bed, the ones who broke Victor Jara's hands and Steve Baiko's skull, who disappeared dissonance from Argentina to Zaire, who served Joseph Stalin, the ones who enforced apartheid in South Africa and segregation in the United States, the ones who interrogated Black Panthers and Catholic workers, who maintained records on 16 million people in East Germany, who track us through surveillance cameras and phone taps, the ones firing tear gas and rubber bullets whenever a demonstration gets out of hand, who back the bosses in every strike, the ones who stand between every hungry person and the grocery shelves stocked with food, between every homeless person and the building standing empty, between every immigrant and her family. In every nation, in every age, you tell us you're indispensable, that without you, we'd all be killing each other, but we know well enough who the killers are. You won't fuck with us much longer. So what don't you like about it? Well, I think listing really bad things done by police is pretty shallow and doesn't get to the root of the problem at all. Many who defend police and policing oppose the things on that list. The problem with police isn't that they have done bad things. For example, we could come up with similar lists of bad things for a lot of professions. Drug dealers, doctors, social workers, etc. The problem with police is more fundamental than that list. They are armed agents of the state who enforce capitalist social relations with violence. Sure, the champions of police and liberal democracies may pay lip service to sensibilities of justice. But violence like this is an unusual police behavior, and it's not unique to one police force. But rather, the capacity to do these bad things is part and parcel to police work. And these arms of the state carry out violence in every nation, in every age. I like that. This poster exposes what police do. For me, that's one of the reasons why this poster misses the point. The police are so scary, not because of what they do per se, but rather because the capacity to commit any violence at a moment's notice lays at the heart of the police function. Cops symbolize violence, and that's their purpose. Cops are specifically charged with keeping things the same, and to do this, they are the only ones who can use legitimate violence. And that's why cops lie on a regular basis, why their mere presence is so intimidating, why so much of law enforcement involves bluffing, improv, dishonesty, and brutality. It's necessary that they do whatever they want in the interest of the law. That's why police tactics often look the same across time and geopolitical lines. Can I show you this passage from Milan Kundera's novel Immortality? I think you'll like it. <clears throat> to fight means to set one's will against the will of another, with the aim of defeating the opponent, to bring him to his knees, possibly to kill him. Life as a battle is a proposition that must have at first expressed melancholy and resignation. But our century of optimism and massacres has succeeded in making this terrible sentence sound like a joyous refrain. You will say that to fight against somebody may be terrible, but to fight for something is noble and beautiful. Yes, it is beautiful to strive for happiness or love or justice and so on. But if you are in the habit of designating your striving with the word fight, means that your noble striving conceals the longing to knock someone to the ground. The fight is always connected with the fight against. And the preposition for is always forgotten in the course of the fight in favor of the preposition against. Well, I think we agree that fighting against the police state doesn't cut to the root of the matter at all. Every modern revolution demonstrates how the supposed revolutionary force constitutes a new police force or army. Whether it was the anarchist CNT in Spain, or the Bolsheviks in Russia, or currently existing forces that are powerful enough to fight and win against the police, take on the role of police in areas where they push out the state. However, my main concern is that those who fight against the police end up internalizing the logic and values of their opponent, regardless of good intentions. You know, during the miner strikes in England in the 1980s, the Union actually pushed miners into confrontations with police as a means of defeating the strike. This is the sort of thing I worry about. That's the systematic nature of institutions, and that's the same reason why, although some police officers may have good intentions, insofar as they obey orders rather than their consciences, they cannot be trusted. 
The point is that the police must not be allowed to brutalize people or impose an unjust social order. Though it can be empowering for those who have spent their lives under the heel of oppression to settle the score with their oppressors, liberation is not a matter of exacting revenge, but of rendering it unnecessary. Therefore, while it may sometimes even be necessary to set police on fire, this should not be done out of a spirit of justice or establishing a righteous order, but from a place of care and compassion. If not for the police themselves, at least for all who would otherwise suffer at their hands. On a more day-to-day -day basis, anything that encourages police officers to quit their jobs is in their best interest, as well as the interest of their loved ones and society at large. Hey, have I ever told you that my dad is a cop? No. Really? Yep. He's been a cop as long as I've known him. <laughs> He worked at the county jail when I was a little kid. He patrolled the city that we lived in when I was old enough to break curfew, and he has been a canine tra training officer ever since. His dogs lived with us and searched cars for drugs and attacked people in flight, and defended my dad from so-called violent criminals. My dad didn't tell me about how horrible working in the county jail was until after I told him that I was an anarchist and asked him to quit his job. He told me that he can't, because it's the only thing that he knows, and he needs to support our family. After I moved out and I told him that he wasn't allowed at my house, he didn't say anything. But over the years, I've become the only person whom my dad can tell he hates his job. He hates the people with whom he interacts. He doesn't care about protecting anyone but my mom and us kids. He hates druggies. He hates enter any profane racist slur in plural form. He hates his coworkers. He hates the defect. Uh, the detectives. He hates his supervisors. He hates what he's done, and he hates who he's become. I look at him, and sometimes I see more of my dad than a cop. There are never times when he is just my dad. There have been a few times when he's stopped being my dad and just been a cop. He's put me in jail before, and he's told me that when you break the law, sometimes that's the consequence. He's a total enigma to me. I want him to quit his job. I look at him, and I can't understand what motivates him. That might be what makes him a cop. As the arguments go, the conditions of modern, urban, and industrial life create conflicts and tension that can only be mediated by the existence of police. Wrong. It's true that collectively we lack a lot of skills that we need to resolve our conflicts without some big brother looking over our shoulder. Oh, and we'll explore more of these skills and alternative models in future episodes. And it's true that, socialized as we are into a world based on competition, coercion, and repression, that if the police vanished overnight, that there would certainly be a lot of conflict. But the police exist to protect and serve the permanent conflict and disorder required for a class society based on exploitation, for a political society based on wielding power over us rather than all of us making decisions for ourselves. You know, as an anarchist, I've been called naive, and people think that I assume human nature is inherently good, because I advocate for things like a world without police. But as anarchists, we're not making any claims about human nature. It's cops and their champions who have to argue that humans are an inherently depraved and violent species to terrify us into believing that they're necessary. In fact, I think that a vast range of human behavior exists within the spectrum of our nature, from our cruelty to our altruism, our exploitation to our kindness. So the real question isn't what we would do outside of social institutions, but what kinds of behavior do our social institutions reward or condemn? Believing that a world without police is possible isn't naive. It's naive to believe that a political system based on violence and repression will keep us safe. The L.A. riots, September 11th, Christopher Dorner. Do we really need any more evidence against that? And it's also naive to believe that just because the power of the police seems permanent now, that things can't change. The most highly funded dictatorship in the world under Mubarak in Egypt toppled in just a few weeks. And the news today shows us that even a so-called democratic regime isn't enough when the people identify police and military power as their enemy. From Chicago to Chongjing, from Belgium to Chile, we live in a world under the eye of a camera. The odds are stacked against us, and policing and surveillance in the land of the free have reached levels that would have made the East German Stasi or Soviet KGB salivate. 
Yet history suggests that the more force a regime has to exert against its subject population to keep it under control, the less stable it becomes. We, we say, say fuck, fuck the, the police. police. That's how we treat them. Count of three say fuck the police. One, two, three, and fuck the police. Yeah, fuck them. Applaud any nigga. Now it's time for the mugshot, our profile of a contemporary anarchist project. Two members of the East Atlanta Cop Watch are joining us to discuss their tactics for dismantling the common myth that police can win any confrontation, so we shouldn't antagonize them. We'll start by speaking with Anthony, a resident of Atlanta, who is hanging with the ex-worker to reflect on an anti-police riot that erupted a few months ago in the Edgewood Court apartment complex located in the neighborhoods near the Cop Watch headquarters. March took place on April 9, 2013, which was one day after a large conflict with the police unraveled at Edgewood Court Apartment, in which a man named Octavius McGee was tackled to the ground by the police, who placed a gun on the back of his head. I think an, an important element of all this was that it was spring break, so all of the youth, the high schoolers, the middle schoolers, elementary schoolers, were all off school, so they were all just hanging out, playing football, having a good time. They witnessed this gross police hostility, at which point people began yelling at the police. Allegedly, at that point, Makia Jenkins, who's friends with us, with Curtis McGee, as he puts it, begins taking up for him, you know, asking the police why they're treating him this way. She is then struck and tackled and thrown into a squad car, and Corey Hill then, as seen in cell phone footage, is struck multiple times by police batons, he's just a bystander, he's pepper sprayed, beaten by many officers. The crowd is incensed at this point. They get pepper sprayed by the police who are, you know, there's almost a dozen squad cars there. People are kind of hurling angry chants at the police and cop lodge in East Atlanta, I guess was an important bridge between the anarchists and this neighborhood. They, they were there and they had a lot of good film. So, so about 24 hours later, at which point, I guess, several dozen people began marching through the, the complex and kind of, again, any, whenever a squad car pulled up, people throw bricks and rocks and bottles at the cars, driving them away, circling the vehicle, just attacking any any cops that came up. Unmarked cars were pelted with brick. The rumor is that the first bottle thrown was thrown by a very, very young girl, very young, and that, that it was actually the kind of active, conflictual minority at the beginning of the demonstration was was a group of young children who kind of bravely confronted the police when, at a moment in the march, when when it seemed like no one else was willing to, and then and then the, that antagonism, rather than, than confining itself to this, this small subject, kind of generalized to the crowd. At some point, I guess, someone poured bricks into the street, and the crowd was basically unanimous. There was, unlike Occupy demonstrations or just other anti-police demonstrations, there was no, not a single plea made for the police. A few years ago, in Atlanta, there was a series of, of anti-police demonstrations following some officer-involved shooting. You know, ended with uh, property destruction, black loss, things of that sort. So I guess kind of, kind of the expectation that there, this was a way to involve ourselves in the struggle of people who we shared this level of affinity with. A lot of this, these events could not have happened without presence of Copwatch, who ties with the neighborhood over a long period of time and did a lot of hard work at, at risk to themselves. And the willingness of, of people in the city to engage with the struggles of other people is really a kind of, I think, an important dynamic that, that sometimes anarchists miss out on. Different ideological, I don't want to say hang-ups, but, but maybe hang-ups or, or something of that sort. I'd just like to encourage people in other places, I guess, to involve themselves with the imperfect, contradictory struggles of, of other sections of, of the class or whatever, because they're usually more exciting, I guess, than maintaining the kind of subcultural avant-garde that, that we have sometimes built up. I'm a member of Cop Watch of East Atlanta, um, and I have been since its inception in 2009. And I live at the Teardown, which is an activist collective that does a lot of projects, including Cop Watch. We take bottom line responsibility for that and some other things, and supporting activism in Atlanta. 
Copwatch is an effort to increase police accountability and community empowerment by filming the police and educating people about their rights so that police can't get away with as much misconduct. I'm Caroline. I also just moved into the Teardown, which is an activist collective here in Atlanta, and I've been doing Cop Watch for about six months. The first time people see us or hear about us in our neighborhood, I mean, not all people ride the up which is great, but the people who are facing constant police harassment, as soon as they find out about us, they love us and they're very supportive. But I think that people didn't really take Cop Watch seriously as a thing until we established a really consistent presence and a really consistent ability to show up when called, and until after the lawsuit, when we successfully sued the cops, that was really helpful too. What happened was in April 2010, we were doing food not bombs in a public park and we happened to see police arresting a guy and we filmed the police and they said we're in members you can't film us and the member of cop watch that had the cell phone kept filming because we know we have the legal right to continue to film the cops seized the phone and we sued them and the city having recently been involved in a bunch of other um massive scandals involving police misconduct readily settled out of court with us so we won forty thousand dollars and changes to the police standard operating procedures that required them to allow us to film and required them to get more training to the effect that we're allowed to film and i think one of the effects of the lawsuit was just that a lot more people heard about us because it was on the news for a couple days which was great for publicity in the neighborhoods and among the people that we're trying to connect with, but also good for protecting us from the police because you can tell that the police do take us seriously as a thing and do have a somewhat legitimate fear that we can hold them accountable and do something to us. For example, when cops try to threaten us or intimidate us, they'll say stuff like, well, your group doesn't protect you from inciting a riot, blah, blah, blah. And that's supposed to scare me, but I'm thinking to myself, they think my group can protect me. That, that's kind of cool. When we first bought this house in this neighborhood, we were concerned that uh, my partner and I are both white, and we were concerned that we would be playing a role in the gentrification of the neighborhood just by making other white people see more white faces and feel, therefore, more comfortable. So we had to think about it, and we're wondering how we could fight gentrification. And we realized that policing is a really important part of gentrification because by constantly harassing poor black people and making life difficult for them, you contribute to the phenomenon of them moving away. And of course, the police serve power and serve the rich, yuppie interests of those moving in. So um, they're the beck and call of those people. We decided that trying to put the brakes on this uh, over constant harassment was a good way to start. So we started out slow and we started out just by doing patrols. And patrols, you normally don't happen to run into cops when you're on patrol, but what a patrol is, is a reason to go out and walk around the neighborhood and we wear bright orange shirts that say cop watch stop police brutality and we carry flyers and we'll give a flyer to anyone that'll take one and we talk to them about police brutality and we listen to them about what's happened to them we've been doing that for about four years in that time a huge percentage of the people that we talk to tell us about just incredible amounts of harassment and oppression that they experience and by doing that over and over again and getting to know people and kind of seeing what they want and trying to respond to their needs, you build a relationship and you build trust and people know that they have our number and they can give us a call if they want us to come out and by consistently uh, showing up when they do, we've started to build more of a relationship of trust. The other part of that though is we don't want to be cop watch just in order to be these rescuers that'll swoop in and save you if you give us a call. That was never the idea. The idea was always to encourage people to start doing cop watch for themselves and to show people a tactic that works and can actually bring you some protection and make your community safer from the police. As part of our outreach, our efforts have always been geared towards, we'll train you. Do you have a camera? You can film the police. Here's what's legal to do. Here's what's safe to do. Uh, and that we've met varying degrees of success.
having cop watch present like helps people feel safer knowing that the cops can't just get away with pulling people off the sidewalk or beating people up when there's cameras there. Like, when cop watch is there, the police know that they're going to be held accountable for their actions, and it scares them. And I think that the people in the community um, know that and have seen that, like, from just us being, from just our presence in the neighborhood, and therefore, um, with Copwatch's presence at the march, I feel like it allowed people to be, like, more emboldened and, like, say things that they might not have otherwise felt safe saying or doing things that they might not have felt safe doing otherwise. Yeah, I completely agree. I think that, to an extent, Copwatch's presence in the neighborhood has, in, over the past couple years, sort of legitimized and maybe even kind of solidified an anti-police sentiment as far as people are willing to speak more openly against the police when they see them. Like Caroline said, people are willing to stand up to the police more when they know that we're there and to an extent that we have their back and that the cops can't get away with as much. And I think that being able or willing to speak out has sort of a cumulative effect over time on yourself and on the people around you. So, I mean, people were always really against the police. Like, we didn't make people be against the police. The police made people be against the police. And the massive amounts of harassment and the way that they ruin people's lives is what makes people be against the police in the neighborhood. But I think that Copwatch has played some role in supporting that sentiment and hopefully maybe getting people to have more of sort of a sense of unity in that and maybe a sense of being willing to do something about it. I think that maybe a lot of anarchists listening to this might think, like, why should we do cop watch, which the ostensible purpose of it is to make sure that the police obey their own laws? Isn't that kind of revisionist and shouldn't we be working on more revolutionary goals? But here's why I think that Cop Watch is a revolutionary thing. If we need, if we're going to make a revolution, we need to build power. We need to build a base of people who are not afraid of the cops and not afraid to stand up to them and have resources and a unified enough way to deal with state repression. And Cop Watch is a good training for further things like that. And it's a good way to reach out to people who know very well what it's like to be oppressed by the cops and give them a sense that they can stand up without repercussions and that they don't have to live in constant fear of the police because the, there are limitations to what the police can get away with. They're not just these demigods. They, they do have their own rules and there are things that we can do to face them down. That spreads much more of a sense of empowerment that I think can lead into other sorts of forms of resistance once you have the skills to, for example, stare a cop down and stand there and do something that they're telling you not to do that you know you can do. Yeah, I think that the Edgewood Courts March was a really good example of that, demonstrating like what Earthworm just said about empowering people to stand up to the cops in a way that they might have not felt empowered to do so before, like had like, you know, like a very like legitimate fear for their, like, own personal safeties, knowing that, like, hey, as a community, we can come together and we can protect each other from the cops. We just need that solidarity network to be there. Another element in the April 10th march was that April 10th Fuck the Police march was a response to the fact that on April 9th, the police beat the living shit out of somebody, essentially for asking why they were beating up his brother. So... And there were uh, probably 100, 150 people out watching that. And they were incensed. The crowd was furious about it. And Copwatch was out there. And people started talking about, you know, what should be done about this. And the idea of a march came out. And I think that Copwatch's continued presence in the neighborhood has developed somewhat of a sense of trust. I don't want to say that people trust us, like, with their lives. But there's there's a sort of an amount of trust there that I feel like probably facilitated the ability of the march to happen and the willingness of people to participate in it. Similar to the lawsuit mentioned by Earthworm, 
A year ago, David Morse of Indy Bay settled with the UC Berkeley Police Department for $162,000 and improved training regarding legal protections for journalists. The laws vary from state to state in terms of filming the police. If folks would like to take part in these activities, they should seek out what legal rights they have to record law enforcement. East Atlanta Cop Watch offers to visit other cities to help them set up effective cop watch groups. For more information and to view their reports, videos, and other resources for standing up to the 5-0, visit copwatchoea.org. Also, I'm sure y'all will be happy to hear that thus far there has been little backlash for the Edgewood Courts riot. In fact, following the riot, the police cleared out of the neighborhood for a few days and for some time afterward, only used undercover cars. The chief of police held a press conference touting lies such as, the riot was out of the ordinary, and the police in Edgewood have a great relationship. The police increased so-called community outreach endeavors to identify possible snitches, but this maneuver was a complete and utter failure. Everyone in the neighborhood just thought it was kind of funny. As far as direct consequences go, there was only one arrest near the riot, and that person received a very minor charge. Thank you, Earthworm, Caroline, and Anthony for joining us. And now it's time for The Chopping Block, in which we review a contemporary or classic anarchist text and tell you what you need to know. This week, we're focusing on To the Indomitable Hearts, the prison letters of Luciano Tortuga Pitronello. This heartbreaking and passionate collection combines statements made by an injured, imprisoned Chilean anarchist and his supporters from around the world. Tracing his resolve to survive and remain at war, even in blindness and captivity, the book offers a poignant portrait of the consequences of committing to a life of militant struggle against capital and the state. On the morning of June 1st, 2011, Two individuals pulled up on a motorcycle in front of a bank in Santiago, Chile. One got off carrying a homemade explosive device, which detonated accidentally in his hands, blinding him, setting him on fire, and injuring his hands severely. In the hospital, where he was placed under armed guard, he was identified as Luciano Petronello Schufenegger, better known by his nickname Tortuga, Spanish for turtle. Demonized by the sensational mass media, Condemned as a terrorist by his own sister, and abandoned by some former comrades fearful of repression, he faced the certainty of prison while saddled with horrifying injuries. Yet against all conceivable odds, he turned around his unbearable situation. Persisting in his physical therapy to recover beyond expectation, overcoming suicidal depression, and defeating legal efforts to prosecute him under an anti-terrorist law, he was sentenced to six years of house arrest and remains unrepentant and committed to anarchist struggle. To the Indomitable Hearts collects five letters written by Tortuga to his comrades between January and September 2012, along with letters written to him by supporters from around the world, lyrics to three songs written to commemorate him and another that Tortuga often sung, and an extensive chronology of solidarity actions across 15 countries. His letters trace his efforts to overcome despair and stay committed to his recovery, analyze hunger strikes as a tactic and discuss the situations of other imprisoned militants, offer constructive self-criticism around his own actions, reflect on the culture and mental environment of prison life, and send a heart-rending statement of compassion and support to his collaborator in the failed attack. Throughout the letters, an astonishing sense of humility and patience shines forth. Tortuga refuses to see himself as a victim, writing with unflinching honesty and untempered passion. Despite all that has happened to him, he scorns those who would cite him as an example of the danger and futility of militant resistance. In a letter titled, When the Fire of Anarchy Nourishes Our Hearts, he writes of the choice authorities attempt to frame between repression and choosing a normal way of life, where you may walk in peace. Peacefully? What is peacefully, he asks. To crush yourself into a day-to-day -day routine of shit that will exhaust your spirit into abandoning a life that means anything? Yes, if for the others this is to live life peacefully, well, then I prefer to live an anarchist life wildly. In another, he describes his determination to recover. Who said that the struggle does not make us great? If my ideas can bring me to lose my life, they can also bring me to recover it. 
So I have thrown myself with all my strength into the fight, because I recognize in it the greatness to break the chains. What matters is to never lose the spirit of struggle, not ever. It does not matter how terrible things look. While your heart and mind do not betray you, the rest becomes mere detail. Our bodies can weaken, it is true, but what makes us great has nothing to do with flesh and bones. What turns us into giants are our convictions, our spirit of knowing that what we do is right. The texts were translated from the original Spanish by War on Society, an international insurrectionary anarchist blog, and bound into a beautiful 101-page volume by egoist publisher Plain Words. Although the translations could have been edited to read more smoothly, the writing is mostly clear and vivid, and the volume is elegantly designed and illustrated with pictures from Solidarity Actions. Reading this text brought me to tears. I have never read so moving a statement of anarchist conviction in the face of repression and misery, steadfastly confronting the despair of prison, injury, isolation, and doubt. Tortuga refuses to sugarcoat these realities, yet finds the strength to carry on, fueled by sheer defiance and nourished by solidarity actions taken around the world. Tortuga and his comrades offer a sobering reminder of the costs of committing to the path of a militant, in a window into the insurrectionary and anti-civilization currents influencing anarchists internationally. Their words are a powerful testament to the value of solidarity and the beauty and passion of lives devoted to uncompromising resistance. As Tortuga wrote in a letter titled, The Abyss Does Not Stop Us, To all those who cannot pacify their dreaming because they know that one of their own is suffering, to all those who took on the fun and exciting adventure of conquering freedom, to the conscious rebels, to all of you, I dedicate these lines, and I owe you the determination that kept me alive, because I'll have you know, you were my oxygen when I had none. To the Indomitable Hearts is available from Little Black Cart Distribution, online at littleblackcart.com. Proceeds from the book Benefit Anarchists Imprisoned by the Chilean State. And now it's time for next week's news. Our calendar of events that are coming up before our next episode. The Earth First Round River Rendezvous is just finishing in North Carolina, but there are plenty of other action camps and gatherings coming up later this month. In eastern Utah, a Canadian petroleum company is planning to open the first U.S. tar sands mine, and people from across the country are descending on Green River, Utah, to make sure this project never breaks ground. Big Oil has already paid their way to regulatory approval, but will only move forward if they can prove that digging up tar sands makes financial sense. The Utah Tar Sands Action Camp plans to show them we can't afford this project and gets underway in Green River, Utah from July 21st through 28th. In Cascadia, the Trans and Women Action Camp, or TWAC Cascadia, will be holding an eco-defense action camp this summer in western Oregon, about 90 miles outside of Eugene. You can join them in the forest from July 23rd to 29th for a week of discussion, skill shares, networking, workshops, storytelling, and action. This action camp is planned by and for folks who identify as women, transgender, transsexual, genderqueer, and gender variant. Also, the Feral Awakening Gathering, a rewilding green anarchist gathering that was planned for late July in Idaho, has been postponed until fall. No date or location has been announced, and folks interested in organizing were asked to contact primalrage at riseup.net. And finally, we've got a few prisoner birthdays coming up. On the 4th was Gerardo Hernandez, one of the Cuban Five. On the 10th, Gary Tyler, a black high school student framed by the police in 1974 for a race-related shooting. And on July 18th, Patrice Johnson, one of the seven black lesbians who were imprisoned for defending themselves against the assault of a homophobic stranger. All of their addresses and information about how to write them is available on our website. Send a birthday card to these incarcerated peeps. That wraps up this episode of The X Worker. Thanks to everyone for listening. I'm Alanis. 
And I'm Alanis. And we'll be back with our next episode on July 21st, at which time we'll dig deep discussing alternative resolution and accountability processes. Plus, you know, the news, events, reviews, and plenty more. This has been a production of the Crime Think Ex-Worker Collective, where heaven is wasted on the dead. We want to thank Christian Williams and East Atlanta Cop Watch for speaking with us, and Global Uprising for sharing their interviews with us as well. Also, many thanks to Frau Tottenkinder and Sven for recording the last two episodes of The Ex-Worker. And thanks to Underground Reverie, who provided us with the music you've heard in this episode. You can hear more at soundcloud.com slash undergroundreverie. Roll up on crimethink.com slash podcast if you want a transcript of the show or more information about anything you've heard. And if you've got any feedback, constructive criticism, call-outs, or ideas for future episodes, holla at podcast at crimethink.com. Or leave us a voicemail at 202-59-NO-WORK. That is 202-596-6975. Also, if you download this podcast through iTunes, leave us a rating and let us know what you think. Remember, be careful with each other so we can be dangerous together. Mo' money, mo' problems. <laughs>